Welcome in to another edition of the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me on the show as always. Eric, another Wednesday, another mailbag. How you doing? Pretty darn good. Looking through these questions, we've got some some good ones this time. Uh, not that we don't always. I don't want to disrespect previous question asks, uh, but th- these are there's some good questions here, and I'm excited to, to talk a little bit more about last week's win over Nevada, and, and it looks like some questions that are big picture as well. So uh, ready to jump into these when you are. Yeah, we've we've got a mailbag Wednesday. If you're unfamiliar with that, uh, every Wednesday, Eric and I run through uh, some questions that were submitted. By Duck fans on Twitter, on our, on our message board at DuckTerritory.com, um, and other means, and we talk everything on Mailbag. We, we obviously right now is kind of heavily focused on football because, whoa, what do you know? Football just, just started. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit of basketball. We'll dive into recruiting. We'll, we'll dive into whatever it is. And, uh, we're, we're covering the Oregon football team right now, who's one and one, ranked 15th in the AP poll, 17th in the coaches poll. Uh, Ducks have Montana later this week. Um, so I'm sure there's going to be some questions on Montana, but also, like Eric said, uh, everything full scope on the Oregon Duck football program. Uh, Eric, I hand the mic to you and you will lead the way. Thankfully, he's not literally handing me a microphone. We actually both have microphones, which is which just tells you how high class of a production this is. First question from at Altman Fever. These are from these are Twitter handles. If you're unfamiliar, I know 77 points is something special, but the defense was impressive. Do you buy into the idea that this group might be something special? I think they could maybe be the best in the Pac-12. Um, I think Matt, like literally, we, you said something very similar to that on Monday. I think uh, in terms of you know, obviously it's very early in the season. Um, there's some good defensive groups, but you're sold in a little bit on the idea that this could be this Oregon defense, especially the way they played this last week, has the looking of maybe the best group in the conference, right? Yeah, I I, I don't know if I'm there yet to say that they're better than Utah, right? Um, but I feel pretty pretty confident in saying that this position, you know, this defensive side of the football is going to be one of Oregon's better units. Maybe since 2014, and, and quite honestly, you know, I I don't think that's the you – know, if you want to go back to, like, a lot of people reference it as, like, the golden age of, of college football – of Oregon Duck football of 2009 to 2014, maybe 15. Um, I don't think the 2014 defense is the best one in that group, um, but I, I certainly think this, this team has that potential, right? Like, what we've seen – from two games where, you know, Oregon's defense was put out on the field a ton against a week one opponent in Auburn and basically went toe to toe. I mean, it, it required a, 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 a last play effort to win the game against Auburn. Uh, and then against Nevada, I mean, they, they held the Wolfpack under 200 yards a week after they, I think, had over 500 yards against Purdue, another power five team. Um, we'll, lo- we'll learn probably a lot more about in my opinion, Oregon's, <clears throat> excuse me, Oregon's, you know, strength of their defense in the next couple of weeks. You know, what do they do against Stanford in two weeks? What do they do, uh, against Washington in, in what, four weeks? What do they, they do, uh, the following week against Washington State and, and then the weekend after that against USC? Uh, I think that, you know, kind of five game or six, six week schedule, 
um, between Stanford and USC, that's November 1st, I think we'll get a real clear idea if our assumptions are true or not. And I, I think that, you know, they probably could be in that and should be in that discussion for the best defense in the Pac-12. And honestly, I, I, I think that's kind of where the, the makeup of, of this program is going. I mean, they're still going to be known for offense, but, you know, I, I think the defense is quickly catching up. And we've, I'm kind of changing the question a little bit, but you, we've referenced that 2014 defense. So I just wanted to run down the starters from that group. Uh, sure. Eric, Eric Armstead, Alex Balducci and DeForest Buckner up front. That's a, that's two first round draft picks in, up there. And then I think Balducci's still playing in the NFL on the offensive line. I, mean, I would take Jordan Scott over Balducci, but I wouldn't take. Right. The uh, are, Austin Folio or Gus Cumberlander over Armstead and Buckner, not even close. Right, and then at linebacker, Tony Washington, Joe Walker, Rodney Hardrick, and Tyson Coleman. And you could maybe argue that this year's group is better at two or three out of those spots. I think Troy Dye is, is certainly the best, probably the best linebacker out of that group. Um, I think you could make a solid argument with the way that Samson New has looked and Isaac Slade has looked at their incompetent. I mean, not to be, not to drag Rodney Hardrick, but like, I think Isaac Slade is as capable as he is. I would say linebacker, maybe this year's group is just as good. Um, and then the secondary, Troy Hill, Eric Dargan, Reggie Daniels, Ifo Ekpreolamu with, uh, Dior Mathis, uh, as the third corner there. Uh, that's a very good secondary. And this year's yeah. a good secondary too, but, um, yeah, I think it's hard to match up there right now. Yeah, I think Efo is probably the best one out of that group. Um, I think Dargan is way underrated. Like he's not, he wasn't the most physically imposing athlete out on the football field, but he was just all over the place. Um, but I, I, I mean, not to deviate too far away from the question, and even though we kind of already have, where do you have? But I, I think. Javon Holland has a chance, I think, to – I mean, I didn't look at him as a guy that was, hey, he could be gone in three years. And I think that's becoming more and more likely at Oregon that he leaves early. I mean, the way he's playing right now um, in the first two games and the growth that he's shown. Um, but even if he doesn't and he stays four years and he continues this, this progress, like – he could be like a first team all safety two years in a row at Oregon if he, you know, as a junior and, and as a senior. I don't know when the last time that's happened. And Oregon during the 90s and the early parts of 2000 and then, you know, towards the tail early parts of 2010s, um, they've always had, you know, this, they've always had good safeties forever. But, you know, there's always been a couple guys though that have been like, unreal safety, you know, right? Like Chad Coda, Michael Fletcher, um, Keith Lewis, uh, I'm going down, you know, TJ Ward. Right. Eddie, you know, Eddie Pleasant when he, before he moved up to, to linebacker. Um, they've always had this just elite, elite dude, John Boyette. Um, Holland looks like he's that next one where, They've always had good ones, but they've always, you know, they've had some special guys, and he looks like that next special, you know, defensive back that Oregon has. And I, I think Thomas Graham and Diamond Lenore are also, you know, playing pretty well for two weeks. Absolutely, and one, just one last thought on that 2014 defense. That was 10 out of 11 players were juniors or juniors or seniors on that group, so it was a very veteran group as well. 
Um, and this year's group obviously has a handful of juniors and seniors, but also some freshmen um, that are playing a lot, and even some fresh, uh, sorry, on a sophomores playing a lot, but even some freshmen playing a lot as well. So uh, I, I think that 2014 defense is, is probably has the heads up right now. But man, I wouldn't be surprised at the end of the season if we're saying this 2019 defense maybe is considered, you know, one of the best couple units of the decade. It looks has the potential to be that kind of a group. Uh, second question from at Clear Duck. Any thoughts of two running back sets with Die or Verdell? I feel like Oregon is telegraphing the run plays. Any th- any thoughts of hiding those run plays with two running backs? Um, you know, they've had instances where they have had two running backs on the field, but it seems like so far it's been like a, one of the guys acting as kind of a wide receiver and then coming in motion and maybe taking a hand handoff. I know we saw during Felix, at least against Auburn. Uh, that was how he scored his touchdown is kind of coming up off the edge. Um, we haven't really seen too much of the two-back set, and it's interesting because I remember last year that was something they did a fair amount and talked about doing. We, we haven't seen it this year. Um, maybe that's something we, we need to kind of look into. But, uh, you know, the running back position I think has been interesting through a couple of games here, and uh, it certainly feels like it's not just Dyer Verdell. Felix has been obviously – pretty involved, and Cyrus Abibilicchio has has shown a couple of things. His touchdown run was impressive on Saturday. Sean Dollars also got in the game, uh, and, and I thought looked pretty good in, in limited opportunity. So it's going to be interesting to see, I think, not just with two running backs on the field at once, but to see sort of how the, the hierarchy plays out with this group. Because, And, like, I wouldn't be – Maybe we're just on the Darian Felix hype train right now, but I wouldn't be shocked if by middle of conference play, if it's more of Verdell and Felix rather than Verdell and Die. And maybe that's just too knee jerk and Die hasn't really had quite as many opportunities, uh, to show it all in terms of just like the holes haven't been there. Most of the stuff he's been doing has been in the, in the passing game, but I don't know. I've been impressed with Felix. I know Matt's been impressed with Felix. Um, I guess back to the same question, Matt, or the, the original question. Two running back sets, you in or out on that? Um, I don't know. Like, usually when you associate two running back sets and to hide, you know, to, to add more confusion to it, you're implementing the option, right? And that would require putting Justin Herbert out there to get hit more. Now, granted, I did say last week that, you know, I wrote on the site that I wanted to see a little bit, you know, just Herbert once or twice a game, keep it on some of those, you know, RPOs that they have um, with, Either when I, whoever's at running back, because um, I felt like there's a ton of space for him to get some yards, and just the threat of him being a threat in the run game, uh, I think could open up the offense a little bit more. But w- once you throw two backs out there and you start, you know, doing the you know the, the reads and and whatnot, that opens the door for defensive players to just tee off on Herbert and. Even when he's not trying to carry the ball, even when he's designed not to carry the ball. So I, I think in that aspect, I probably wouldn't want to see that. That being said, I, I really like Travis Dye, um, as kind of a safety blanket in the passing game. And so, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's finding ways to get him involved more. Maybe he can do a little bit more in the pass game than he does in the run game. I mean, he's, you know, he, he's got right now, um, three catches for 28 yards. And I, you look at the running backs on the roster, you know, Felix had the one catch for 21. Um, and, and maybe that's another guy. Maybe that's how Felix gets on the field because he's so quick. 
Um, you know, maybe I, I just I liked what I saw with Herbert and and Die throwing the football together. Um, two back sets though, I I don't know. I just I'm you know I I guess I'm taking a really long way of saying I don't I don't really see it. Third question comes from at Brands Brez. Which Pac-12 team is going to be our biggest home game, and which Pac-12 team is going to be our biggest road game? The league seems pretty wild and not as predictable as to who the top dogs are this season. Um, I'll start. I, I think I don't think anything from a road game perspective has changed. I think it's still going to be Washington, right? I, I just I that's kind of the game of the season. I know Washington losses last weekend and. I guess if Washington were to enter that game with two or three losses, maybe it, it wouldn't carry that same weight. But it's still a massive rivalry game. You know, the Pac-12 North has gone through Seattle each of the last couple of years, and I still think I still maintain that Washington, even though they're 0-1 in conference play and didn't look very good, frankly, against Cal, that they're going to be that that game is going to mean enough that that game is going to be really significant on the road. And honestly, I, I guess the other one I would throw in there would be the USC game, just because USC looked awfully good in that second half against Stanford. And, you know, if they get it going and the talent's there and, and they really kind of rally behind health, and even though they just got rid of their athletic director yesterday, I guess he just resigned, Lin Swan. Um, I, I, I think that game could also be interesting. I guess I'm cheating at giving two answers. But my, my one, I think pretty clearly I would say the, the biggest road game of Pac-12 play is going to be Washington. And the biggest home game, um, I, I'm starting to think Washington State might be pretty good. You know, and I, we haven't seen them play – Top to you know top level competition quite yet. Um, we, we will this week against Houston, which is going to be a bit, by far their most competitive opponent. Um, and that game's not going to be at home, so it'll be interesting to see how they you know they play you know on a road situation. Um, but I just think the Cougars continue to be really really good under Mike Leach, and especially good against Oregon. You know, Oregon is going to have to go out and and, and you know take it from Washington State because Washington State's I think won the last three games in the rivalry. Um, so I would say the Washington schools for me, home and and on the road, would be uh, the toughest games. What about you, Matt? Do you have any answer there? Um, I think Washington is always. You're right with Washington. It's always going to be. I think this year the biggest game. I mean, the Huskies are are going to be out for blood for that one, just because you know how last season ended, and you know their fan base is going to be just absolutely rabid because of it. Um. I do agree with you. Washington State looks like it, it's going to be a difficult game for Oregon. And, and honestly, like, we probably should have been hyping this game up more from the beginning just because, you know, the Cougars have won this game four years in a row. But now it's getting to the point, right, where I think Leach has shown, and, and maybe we're buying too much into this, but – I think it's getting to the point where with Mike Leach, it's like, it doesn't really matter who they lose. They're going to, you know, their offense is going to be special. And as long as they can get somewhat of a competent defense, you know, they're, they're going to be pretty good. I mean, they won 58 to seven against New Mexico state week one, 59 to 17 against Northern Colorado week two. And like you said, they go to Houston um, on a, for a Friday night game. Uh, on the road, and I think that game's actually played in Dallas, but, um, you, you just look at, you know, this group, and, you know, they, they have what looks like a, a decent run game. I mean, Max Borgie's got 162 yards and three touchdowns on the ground, and for Washington State, that's like a, that's like <laughs> 300 yards, you know, with, with what they do. Anthony Gordon, the, you know, the, the quarterback, 
he's thrown for 884 yards and nine touchdowns and just one interception. He's completing 81% of his passes, you know, already. And, um, he's looked really, really good as, as, you know, the new kind of trigger man for that offense. And then, you know, like typical Mike Leach fashion, he's got a bunch of guys at receiver and, and who can do a lot of things. I mean, they've got five guys with over a hundred yards receiving. Um, I think it's seven guys have caught touchdown passes for the Cougars. And so I think that one's going to be a different, you know, a very difficult game for Oregon. Um, and it's cause it's especially after Washington and, you know, what's the emotional letdown going to be like for Oregon? And, um, I, I, I think USC though could all, could, could position itself to be maybe the toughest game on Oregon's schedule, right? Like, Seeing, you know, how good they, you know, we've always said every year it's always been like, well, USC has the best athletes. It's just they're not a very good, you know, very well coached team. And if they kind of figure out, you know, the off the field type stuff and, you know, they come into games and they figure things out, like they're going to be a formal opponent. And, you know, through two weeks, we're kind of seeing that even though JT Daniels, the starting quarterback, has been knocked out for the year with, with a, I believe, a torn ACL. You know, Caden Slovis has come in and has, has done a really good job for the Trojans. I mean, his, his first game as a starter was last week against Stanford and he threw for 377 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. He completed 84, almost 85% of his passes. He was 28 of 33. Um, USC is loaded. They, you know, right? Like they have talent. Like they, they probably still have the most talent on any roster in the Pac-12. It's just always been they haven't lived up to the billing. And so Oregon's going to be playing at Washington the following week against Washington State at home. And that third week, they have to go back down to Washington State – or back down to USC. That game looks like it it could be Oregon's toughest game of the year. Yeah, and and for the record, the two games I had preseason Oregon losing were at Washington, at USC, and I still contend those are going to be two very, very difficult games. And I guess the fourth game, if we're doing a a second home game, that that California team now, after beating Washington, I know Oregon's handled Cal pretty well the last couple years, but that defense is really good, and that could be a game that ends up being a a really close, low-scoring defensive game, and and who knows, maybe it plays out similar to to the game in Seattle. I I like Oregon's team significantly better than Washington's right now, but I think that Cal game still has to be kind of mentioned in the same discussion as another one of those tough games that they have on the schedule left. Our fourth question from at NatFod, if Cristobal Slash or Royal don't arrange a Herbert-to-Herbert touchdown pass against Montana, Will it be acceptable for me to demand we fire them regardless of how well the team performs? Um, I think I, I, I like where that That's question is That's a complete in jazz question, right? Like, I, I, yes, it is. Uh, I, I would, I got, I hope so. Uh, uh, unless I guess, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that has to be in jest. And, and I, I like the direction it was going until, until the end of it. And then it really took a dark turn, but, uh, hey, uh it's I, dark and gloomy out here in Eugene right now. It is, yeah. I guess this question kind of follows that uh, that that theme. But um, yeah, I mean, Jim Levitt that, was right, by the way. He was. <laughs> um, just, I mean, just the first part, like, yeah, this probably does feel like, in, in all honesty, the best chance for our Herbert to Herbert touchdown pass, um, because it's not discredit Oregon State. Okay, that, um, I feel like by I think we are discrediting Oregon State by saying like saying that it has the better chance, but you're right. That Oregon State game could be 
significantly more lopsided and it would be pretty cool. I actually be cool stakes to have it be uh, in the civil war that those guys connect for a touchdown. But uh, for a while, for a very long time, this will be definitely the best opportunity for those two to connect. We should mention that Patrick Herbert was out with the receivers group on, you know, he, he was practicing with the wide receivers group, not at tight end, which is the position he was obviously recruited for. Looks pretty good running routes before the game. Uh, it felt like there was a chance that that would be how it played out, that, they, that he would get some looks. But I don't think those two were ever on the field together. So yeah, I was just going to say, I can't recall um, in the Nevada game. No, I don't think they were. Justin being in, in a quarterback and Patrick being in at receiver or tight end. I think Patrick came in, his first time came in midway through the third when uh Maybe even it was even in the fourth. Yeah, I think it was the fourth, which is why I would say, like, the hard thing here is there might be an opportunity where Oregon's up by enough points, but they'd almost have to, like, force it to happen because Justin Herbert's probably going to be out of the game before you want to bring Patrick Herbert in, if I'm being honest. It feels like Patrick Herbert's, like, the eighth best receiver or the fifth best tight end right now, so he's a little bit down the pecking order, and obviously Justin Herbert is the first best quarterback on Oregon's team. Um <laughs> So uh, I, I, I say while it feels like the Montana game might be the game, I just think there might be limited overlap between those two players when they actually get on the field. Here's a – I'm going to throw my own question into this mailbag. All right. Because um, it kind of goes with the Herbert, the Herbert thing. There's been some stories that have come out now that Oregon, from, from the Nevada perspective, that they felt like Oregon maybe – ran the score up a little bit. Do you, do you buy into that? Uh, yeah, Yes and no. I could see how that would be the way it was perceived. I mean, Oregon kept the foot on the gas, you know, with their second-team offense, you know, uh, and I, I do think that they remained pretty aggressive. Um, and, and, you know, I don't – that Darian Felix play, that was a run play. I don't think that was – you know, that, the intention of the play isn't to try to run the score up, but, you know, Montana didn't stop the play, and that would be my second response is, such a Nevada. Nevada had a lot of opportunities to stop Oregon and just couldn't do it. And Nevada, frankly, put gave Oregon really good opportunities to score. I think Tyler Shuck's first drive started at like the six yard line because of one. Of, I think it was the the Steve Stevens interception return. Um, Oregon had a ton of their drives start deep in Nevada territory because Nevada turned the ball over um, a couple of different times. You know, they had the mishap with the punt where Thibodeau sacked the punter at like the seven yard line. So. Um, sure. The, I don't the, buy it. Yeah, the score was lopsided, sure, but like I, Nevada also had opportunities to stop Oregon and just failed to do so. So I, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily think they're running up the score. Sure, I think they maintained some aggression, but I also think when you have a quarterback and Tyler Shuck who you're trying to get reps for, you don't want to just have him turning and handing the ball off. You want to have some sort of variance, and I think that's what you saw, and I guess that's what you could be reacting to. But again, if I'm Nevada, you had chances to stop Oregon and you didn't. Hundred uh, percent. I I I can't get behind the fact that Oregon ran it up. I mean, they did they stay running their offense? Sure, absolutely. But that's kind of what you're supposed to do, right? Especially now with the redshirt rule, where you can play guys for you know for four games and and still keep their red you know their redshirt season intact, and it's getting a chance to see what they can do. So uh, I do not buy into that. Um, Let's take a break here on the Odds and Audibles podcast, hear from some sponsors, and we'll finish up the show with our second set of four questions from uh, Mailbag Wednesday. 
All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I am Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me. And as always, we're answering questions on this Wednesday, uh, Mailbag Wednesday. If you have questions and you want to get them to us, shoot us uh, a text, shoot us an email, shoot us on Twitter, uh, find us on the message board. You know, shoot those questions over as quickly as you can. Eric, let's go to the next question. Yeah, uh, our next question comes from at MVH. Genetics. Mace Funa looks more ready for college than Kayvon. What do you two think? Also, shout out for the punter. His amazing kicks often level the field. Um, the first part there, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think there might be some truth to it in terms of production so far. Um, I mean, certainly Funa has had more plays and, you know, he leads the team in tackles for loss. I think he's uh, tied for the, the team lead in sacks. He's, yeah, again, he's just simply made more plays than Thibodeau has. But I would say let's not jump to too many conclusions two games in here in terms of who's more college-ready. Uh, I do think Thibodeau is going to have some moments coming up. It could be on Saturday against Montana. It could be against Stanford. It could be later in the season. Um, I think it's a situation where you, you, you're actually, rather than compare them, you should probably be celebrating the fact that you have two true freshmen off the edge who are really, really talented football players who have extremely high ceilings and who, you know, you know, granted that they, they stay with the program and stay healthy and, and nothing terrible happens, are going to be, I think, potential superstar players off the edge. I mean, you could have a scenario here where you have those two and DJ Johnson, um, you know, on the edges for the next two or three years, and that is a really, really scary collection of edge athletes, of pass rushers, of just guys who make life miserable for opposing offenses, and so... Yeah, I think Funa's looked better through two games. I don't think I'm ready to say he's the bit more college-ready player than, than Thibodeau just yet. I want to see a little bit larger sample size. Um, but but my, my takeaway is, gosh, it's awesome to have so many guys of this caliber you know, in the same class or around the same class at the same time in Oregon. It's, it's, it's really something that you know the Ducks, frankly, haven't had historically uh, at the same time very often, that's for sure. I think they're being used in different ways too, right? Definitely. Definitely. Like- I, I, so I, I don't think it's it's a straight apples to apples comparison. So uh, it, it is one guy making, and this is the thing about defense is that you know like you can make a huge impact on a play and not record a, a stat. So I mean I, I don't necessarily think Kayvon Thibodeau hasn't been playing well. Like he, I mean he he does have. Uh, some big plays. I mean, he had that that big tackle against Nevada for the on the punt. Um, he's also a guy that's you know getting a ton of pass rush. I mean, I tweeted it out uh, yes on on Monday afternoon that you know there were a couple times we have clips of it where he was like a millisecond away from getting a sack because he just blew right by the DB or the offensive lineman that that was trying to to block him. So. I mean, two tackles. One of them being for a tackle for loss. He's played in two games. I mean, what? I don't. I don't know what more. You know, I, I'm not really like you. I'm not ready to sit here and say there's anything to worry about. I mean, Funa's only got two more tackles. Now, granted, they're all tackles for loss, and two of those are sacks. Um, but one of them came in garbage time against uh, Nevada, I think, and you know whatnot. But still, they're both. Long story short, they're both very impressive players. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I think that's the thing that stands out is, is just how fortunate this, you know, this team is to have two guys like that who, again, could be playing together off the edge for a couple of years in Oregon. Next question from at S. 
Collier. Will Oregon's two walk-on kickers play a role this season, or is it all Camden Lewis? And, and we should mention this for those listening who maybe missed some news on, on Monday. Uh, Mario Cristobal announced that Adam Stack, the other scholarship place kicker, um, will pursue a transfer. And, and then Matt reported uh, that Zach Emerson, another kicker on the team, a walk-on, had, had been arrested uh, about a week ago. Um, and it was kind of his status with the team was sort of, I wouldn't say up in the air, but he was not really practicing-ish right now. Uh, and so I, I do think this is Camden, this is Camden Lewis's job. The other walk-on kickers he's, he's referencing, um, I think it's like Taylor Koff and I'd have to go look up the, the fourth name. Um, off the top of my head, I don't recall it. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think this is, this is Camden Lewis's job for sure. And, Look, uh, we didn't, we haven't seen him make a field goal. He's made all his extra points. He's done a pretty good job as, you know, kicking off the ball. I, I think that's something that he deserves credit for. But we're still in a situation here where, you know, the numbers are dwindling. But I, I still think we don't necessarily know if Oregon has a place kicker that can kick a field goal of really any distance right now. I know, I know Lewis was a highly rated guy. He told me before the season that he is, he, you know, he thought his range was up to 55 yards, which is, significant would be an awesome weapon, but you know, his first kick and it's not an easy situation. It wasn't necessarily an easy kick in terms of where it was lined up, but he missed a 20, 20 yard kick, basically an extra point in his first time out. So there's still a lot to prove in my eyes with Lewis, but I would expect barring injuries that he is the guy as the place kicker and as the kickoff guy all season. And that this is going to be Oregon's kicker probably for the next four years, unless things don't go very well, he gets injured Something else happens that we don't expect, but he's a true freshman. He's the starting kicker um, to start his career at Oregon. And, again, if all goes well, he's going to be that guy, you know, into the 2020s. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think there's anything, you know, to, if, if the other walk-on kickers are, are called into action, that means Camden Lewis has been hurt. Um, and I, I, don't, I mean, how often do kickers get hurt in games, you know, right? Like, I guess I guess I shouldn't ask that question because Stack's been hurt for two years. I was, was um, going to say that, that unfortunately there's a good example on Oregon's roster, or was a good example on Oregon's roster. Yeah, but I, I mean before Stack, how often has a kicker gotten hurt? So um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna side with chance of, of that happening unlikely. All right, next question from at Manister Duck. I read a stat that Justin Herbert went 10 games between 300 yards passing. Do you think Oregon is being as aggressive as possible with Herbert, or could there be more chances of going deep in the passing attack? Um, well, Matt, you were following a little bit more closely than I was the number of times they went deep on Saturday against Nevada. It did seem like they opened it up, and obviously he went for more than 300 yards in that game. Um, I don't know if you remember if you know the numbers, but yeah, it was eight. Um, they they attempted eight passes. Um, I think he completed on five of them um, for for deep shots. A couple of them went for touchdowns. Um, but that was all in the first half. That was before Oregon, you know, pulled in. And I, I stopped keeping track of, of that stuff um, once Herbert left because, you know, the offense is going to change a little bit when, when Shuck comes in, unless it's, you know, a, a close score. Uh, but, you know, I – I think that stats kind of like we checked it. Yeah, it's true. Um, 
I I do think that's that's kind of alarming in the fact that you know you have such a good quarterback, but I think it also is a little bit indicative of the talent around Herbert. You know, it's it's not just you know you can throw anyone out there and and, and win games, and you know Oregon's dealing with some injuries right now, and um, granted, I think. They could take it. You know, they could have afforded to take a couple more shots downfield. We'll see what happens against you know Montana. It wouldn't surprise me if he goes over 300. It wouldn't surprise me if he stays under 200, just because he gets pulled so so quickly. Um, it's it's that one's all going to be you know indicative of of or depending on how you know Oregon scores. Do they score like they did against Nevada with some shots downfield that you know break loose for a 50, 60 yard catch? Um, or, you know, do they methodically move the, the ball down and, you know, you know, a big play happens in the passing game, but he gets tackled at the four and they run it in. Um, you know, that, that could easily happen as well. So I'm not really seeing what happens with, with Montana. That could go either way. Stanford will, will get another good, you know, good look. They've typically got good DBs. They've got good defenses. Um, I, I think I would like to see it more. Um, just because, look, he's your best player. He's one of the best players in the country, and you want to play to his strengths, and his strength is throwing the football. So um, it surprises me it was that long of a stretch, but at the same time, I think we should also be expecting to see a couple more this this season. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I would be really surprised if if that 10-game stretch is, you know, if that if there's another 10-game streak without a 300-yard passing game from Herbert. Just, just the way he's... Frankly, the way he looked on Saturday after that slow start, I thought that was about as good as we've seen him in terms of he was just on the money over and over again. And he was the same way against Auburn. And, you know, I think through two games, we probably haven't talked about it enough, but he looks like the real deal. And, again, we'll have a better idea once they play Stanford. Stanford's corner, Paul Sanadebo, is probably the best defensive back in the conference, or at least that's the reputation he has. And that's going to be a big test, especially depending upon how Oregon is that a help health-wise, that wide receiver of guys still remain out. And, and by the, the look at it, there's definitely going to be a handful of guys that are still, you know, on the mend at that point. So I think that'll be a big test. But I, I would agree. I think I think he's going to have no fewer than five or six more 300 passing games from here. You know, and maybe that's setting the bar too high. But uh, I think I think we saw on Saturday just the start of what's going to be a really strong passing season for, for number 10. All right, last question of the day comes from at DWeather5. With Washington and Stanford both losing to unranked opponents, do you think that hurts our chances now in impressing the committee for a possible playoff spot, even if we run the table? I'll let you take that one, Matt. Oof. Um, I think initially, yeah, it hurts. Because, what are you, you know, those were supposed to be marquee wins for your program. Um, you know, Auburn was going to be – you know, the, the bright and shiny trophy, um, that didn't happen. And then it made it extremely difficult after that happened for you to get into the college football playoff if you went, you know, 12-0 the rest of the way and that 12th game being conference championship. And that was under the assumption that Washington's going to be a, you know, top 15 program. Stanford's going to be kind of a top 20 program. And honestly, like, Stanford's out. Washington's outside of the top 20, I believe. Um, you're, you're the, 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 the impact of winning those, those games are huge from a conference perspective, but from a national perspective, they're not going to carry much weight. Now, 
what happens if USC runs the table until they play Oregon? You know, that could change things because that, that would mean they'd probably have a win over Notre Dame and Notre Dame's a top 10 team. And you, at the, if, if USC runs the table until Oregon gets there, they'll, they'll be a top 10 team. So that's a big win. And then, you know, if Utah runs the table, um, you know, or, or goes into the conference championship game with one loss, you know, they'll be a top 10 team. So you can still get some top 10 wins. Um, but it's all going to be based off of you need the, you know, you need the league to do well, right? You need USC now to, since they've beaten Stanford, you're asking them to kind of pick up the mantle of what Stanford was supposed to be this year and be even better than that. And I think Stanford was being viewed as a team that was probably a top 20 team. So you're asking USC that you need to be probably a, a top 10 team, top 15 team, if Oregon wants to have, you know, enough marquee wins to justify getting into the college football playoff. And I don't, <clears throat> I don't know how many, you know, non-conference, big, you know, big non-conference games are left in the season. I mean, UCLA plays Oklahoma, but, you know, what are the chances of that happening? Um, both Stanford and USC need to play, uh, Notre Dame. You know, so that's, you know, an opportunity for the conference to get some, you know, another marquee win against a really good opponent. Um, I, I think I still don't subscribe to the theory that the college football, you know, playoff is completely eliminated, but, you know, it was already a razor thin margin for Oregon after the loss to Auburn and seeing Washington and seeing Cal or seeing Stanford both lose week two. Um, makes that margin even thinner if that's even possible. Yeah, another another game that maybe carries some weight would be Cal at Mississippi. Mississippi's not supposed to be a very good SEC team. If Cal is going to be a legitimate Pac-12 contender, I think they need to go into uh, you know it's a played at Mississippi. They need to go win that game on the road to sort of carry some of that goodwill over, and, and maybe that Cal team ends up being a team when Oregon plays and that's that's ranked and, and highly regarded. Uh, and they can win that game. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I'm in agreement with a lot of what you said, though, just about uh, the conference hasn't done itself a ton of goodwill by kind of cannibalizing itself at the same time. Yeah. I, I think there's so much season left to be played that all of this can work out. And, and, and a lot of what this is going to come down to is does Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia take care of business at the top? You know, what does Oklahoma and Ohio State and Michigan do? You know, if, if Notre Dame beats some of those Pac-12 teams and, and is, has a you know is one loss, that makes things more interesting. It, it, there's so many things in the equation, but you're right in saying that the Pac-12, basically three of their top four contenders to make the playoff come in of the season has one loss, and we're two weeks into the season, and that's terrible for for this you know this conference trying to get a representative. You know, uh, Utah is really the only team that is considered a real contender that hasn't lost so far and again that's not a great spot to be when you're when you're two weeks into a college football season and I think that again speaks unfortunately to I think the Pac-12 as a whole is pretty I think they've got some I think the middle of the conference is pretty strong I don't think the top of the conference is as strong as other conferences and that puts you I think in a tough spot for trying to get into the playoff I mean look like the reality is if if Oregon goes 12 and 1 they're going to be in the discussion. And then it just becomes how many undefeated teams are there. And, you know, like if, if what happens if the SEC kind of eats up on itself? Like what happens if, if let's just say Alabama, you know, they, they run the table. Okay. They win the SEC championship game for 13 and 0. But 
the SEC also, you know, eats up itself a little bit and we see the, the you know, the second place or the, the team that loses in the SEC championship game with three losses and the best team out of the, the excuse me, the second best team out of the SEC West has three losses, right? Like that's possible. Um, or two losses. Like that, that's a scenario where, you know, the SEC might not send two teams to the college football playoff. Like if, if, if enough teams can lose, you know, twice, that's not going to, you know, that's going to hurt the SEC's chances of getting two teams in. Um, you know, what happens if we don't see, what happens if, if Clemson, you know, it's yeah. not going to happen. I'm not even going to go down that road. Well, no, uh, that, that would get interesting if Clemson lost a couple of games because the ACC looks pretty bad right now. And if Clemson yeah. were to lose a couple of games and suddenly they're out of the discussion, that would really open things up for the Pac-12 or the Big 12 probably. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it you're, you're, all you can control is what Oregon faces, and they need to win out. They need to go 12 and, you know, they need to finish the year 12 and 1. And the only way of guaranteeing yourself in – to the college football playoff is going undefeated. If you're a power five team, do that, you're in because we haven't yet seen a team go undefeated and not make the college football playoff. So when, if you're in the, if you're in the power five, so Oregon can't do that. So the best thing that they can now worry about is just winning the rest of their games and finishing the year 12 and one. And if they do that, they'll be in the discussion. Doesn't mean they're going to be in it, but end the actual playoff and select it as one of the four teams. But, you win, you go 12 and 1, at worst, you're playing in the Rose Bowl. At think, worst. Yeah, and I think that just this conversation as a whole, if you just take a step back, to me it, it is just further evidence of kind of how silly the college football playoff is, is that Oregon loses its first game of the season on a last second play, and now basically has no margin for error, and even if they are to win out, there's no guarantee they're going to be playing for a national championship. I, I think that's, Again, indicative of a system that is that is pretty flawed, and I know it's hard. You, you want to limit the number of games. It's not basketball where you can go out there and, and play a seven-game series or play a, you know a sixty-four team tournament. But I, you've got to find a way to have more inclusivity here. And I, again, I just think the fact that the Pac-12, that we're even having this discussion after two weeks in the season, that the Pac-12 may have no chance of winning a national championship, like that kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, just, just point blank. <laughs> I mean, it stinks. Like, if you're if you're a fan of the Pac-12 and you know three teams lose, and now you're like, oh, well, I guess we'll have to wait to 2020 to maybe have a team make the college football playoff. I, I just think that just in and of itself is is problematic and kind of again part of the part of the problem. And it's better than the old DCS where you had two teams, but uh, at some point we need to expand it again. I think, and I think there should be an automatic qualifier from each conference so that you're not having this discussion. So there's not this crazy, crazy amount of like, man, Oregon could win 12 straight games, but still not make it in. I mean, that's, that seems silly to me that if a team, if Oregon were to turn it on here and win 12 straight games and look impressive doing it and still not make the playoff, like that's to me is a broken system. But, um, I, I, what I say doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll eventually get there where it expands a little bit. I think, I personally think four is a good number. Um, I, I think it builds the importance of, of every single game. I, I think, I think that's what makes college football and the NFL so good is that every game matters, right? Like there's always something on the line. And when you start adding more teams that make the college football playoff, 
you know, it's, like you said, it's never going to get to what the NCAA tournament is for college basketball, but the NCAA tournament is so big now that it devalues a lot of the games. And because teams play 31 regular season games, they don't mean everything. You know, like every game doesn't hold importance. Like you can lose, you know, we've seen teams lose 14, 15 games in the regular season and find their way into the into the postseason. Whether they deserved it or not, they, they, they did it. They got there. And so you know, that's what makes football so, I think, so exciting and, and so popular is that every game matters. And so it's finding that balance where you can still keep that, you know, every game matters every week mentality during the regular season and yet get enough teams in where you, you have a good chance. And, and also let's be real, like, how often has there been a case where we've felt like the eighth or the seventh best team in college football could go in and, you know, 40% of the time or 50% of the time beat the number one or the number two team in college football? Like, like, like there's always been that gap right around there, right? Like, I don't want to get too far into what numbers would you do if you were to expand the playoff, but – I can't recall many years where we come out and we say like, Hey, like Michigan's the eighth best team in the country and they easily could go and beat Alabama. They deserve to be in the playoff. Like how often does that actually happen? And, but but my thing is even if it's not 40% or 50% that, that Michigan would beat Alabama, I just think it'd be fun to at least have somebody have the try, you know, the opportunity to try. And, and I, I just think we're limiting, kind of what the playoff could be by, by cutting out some of these conferences entirely. And again, like if you're like a non power five conference, like I don't know why you're even playing a season because you, you can win every single game. We've now seen oh, it a sure. couple times and you still don't get recognized. So I, I just think I, if, if I'll do a quick 30 second, if I was expanding, I'd go five automatic bids from each of the conferences. I think the, the non power conferences should get a bid and then you have two at larges. Um, and, and so it's it's six automatic qualifiers basically, and then two at larges, and, and and that to me is the most logical way to set it up. But it won't it won't be happening probably until uh, 2035. So that's it's not much to get excited. For. <laughs> All right, I think that's going to do it for us, right? No more questions. That was that was our last question. Good stuff. Um, appreciate everyone from you know sending your questions into the mailbag. Uh, I think we're getting more and more each week which is awesome, which tells us that we're doing something right. And uh, our listens are also going up on the podcast every week. So thank you for listening to the Mailbag Wednesday. Thank you for listening to all our other podcasts that we do. We're seeing the numbers, and the numbers are telling us that our listenership is going up, and more people are, are finding us, more people are, are messaging us, saying that they listen to us you know, a couple times a week. Uh, and hearing that stuff is humbling. Hearing that stuff is awesome. Um, and we can tell you right now that the data says that, you know, our listens are going significantly up, uh, every month. And, and we're talking, you know, 40%, 50% growth. Last month we had an 80% growth of listenership on the podcast. So thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for sharing the Odds and Audibles podcast. And for Eric Scopel and myself, Matt Perim, you are listening to the Austin Audible's podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.